Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, Asaph addresses a heart problem of his, one which is characterized by envy, and particularly envy rising from the success of the wicked. Envy can be quite subtle in the Christian walk and often goes unnoticed in our prideful hearts. So before we dive into the text, I would like to give you some reasons or highlight certain ways in which the Christian can be found guilty. Firstly, one can envy unbelievers who are wealthier than them. This may not be much of a temptation to those who are not under financial difficulties, but it can be easy to understand one who is working faithfully in his job and putting in the sweat and blood to have envious thoughts to an unbeliever who perhaps is not working as hard. And it appears to him that that person is unjustly getting benefited um, by his circumstances. These days with the reality of social media, people are becoming millionaires by being influencers. And not influencing people to live righteously, but often the opposite really. Uh, their sin is being worshipped in the sights of this world. And they're getting paid to do this. Surely this is unjust. Secondly, one can un envy unbelievers who are healthier than them. Again, this is a temptation, uh, is more of a temptation to one who is struggling with their health. How can I, who am righteous, be afflicted with such and such an illness, and the one who is wicked and living a sinful life be free from such a burden? Why me? Surely my life brings more honor than theirs. Surely this is unjust. Thirdly, one can envy unbelievers who are more talented than them. Why did God allow the wicked lifestyles of my competition to prosper? I found myself falling prey to this one. I had dedicated my whole childhood into this dream of becoming a professional football player. And when God revealed to me that this was not his will for me, it was easy for me to accuse God of being unjust. How could he let the dreams of the wicked succeed over mine? Have you noticed that there are very few Christians who are hugely successful businessmen, politicians, sportsmen, and celebrities, and people in many spheres of life? Have you asked the question as to why the wicked prospers? What about the amount of corruption and evil that takes place in everyday life? A current one would be the massacre um, in Israel 22 days ago. How could the boastful, wicked plans of those terrorists succeed in murdering and torturing innocent civilians? What about the Christians facing persecution today? What about the increasing population of the LGBTQ community and their prospering agendas, how that has infiltrated our society? What about the increased following that the prosperity gospel has accumulated? Why do false teachers succeed? Why do the wicked prosper? In Psalm 73, Asaph struggled with this question. 
Let's read together Psalm 73 this morning to see what Asaph had said. Psalm 73 is a psalm written by Asaph. So before we read this, this psalm, let me quickly give you some background on who Asaph was. Scripture tells us in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 16, Then David said to the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their relatives, the singers, with instruments of music, harps, lyres, loud-sounding cymbals, to raise a sound of gladness. So the Levites appointed Heman, the son of Joel, and from his relatives Asaph, the son of Berechiah, and from the sons of Moriah, their relatives, Ethan, the son of Cushiah. So Asaph was one of three men whom David put in charge of the service of song in the tabernacle. Out of the canonized 150 psalms, Asaph wrote Psalm 50, as well as the Psalm 73 all the way to 83. So Asaph would compose these psalms and sing them in the Levitical choir in the house of Yahweh. I'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible this morning. In Psalm 73 it says, A Psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the boastful, I saw the peace of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, and they are not stricken along with the rest of mankind. Therefore, lofty pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The delusions of their hearts overflow. They scoff and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue goes through the earth. Therefore, his people return here to his place, and waters of fullness are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and reproved every morning. If I had said, I will recount thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I gave thought to know this, it was trouble in my sight. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places, you caused them to fall to destruction. How they, are, how they become desolate in a moment, they are completely swept away by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like an animal before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel you will lead me and afterward take me in glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the rock of my heart and my portion forever. 
For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have set Lord Yahweh as my refuge, that I may recount all your works. In Psalm 73, Asaph gives us three reasons why we should not envy the wicked. He gives us three reasons why we should not envy the wicked. Firstly, because it is extremely sinful. And we'll look at that in verses 1 to 16. Because it is extremely sinful. Secondly, because the wicked's end is eternal torment, which we'll see in verses 17 to 20. Because the wicked's end is eternal torment. And thirdly, because the believer's end is eternal joy, which we'll see in verses 21 to 28. Because the believer's end is eternal joy. It is rather interesting this way the psalm begins. This opening statement in verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, is retrospective. The Hebrew word for surely expresses certainty and shows Asaph's sense of conviction. He is stating this undeniable truth that he knows with certainty that God is good to those with a pure heart. So before Asaph has presented this issue with the prosperity of the wicked, he acknowledges God's goodness. But verses 2 and 3 shows us that Asaph was challenged by his own experience. It says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the boastful, I saw the peace of the wicked. Asaph had nearly slipped because although he knew God is good to those whose hearts are pure, he saw the wicked's peace and doubted God's goodness. We love Romans 8.28 which says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. But how often do we wholeheartedly know God is good? Yet when we look at our circumstances or the circumstances of those around us, we, we still doubt God's goodness and justice. Asaph's doubts arose when he dwelt upon how prosperous the ungodly were. And this prosperity that Asaph envied are detailed for us in verses 4 to 12. Please follow along with me in your Bibles as we look at these reasons. Forgive me for rushing through them as I'll need to give brief explanations in order to get through the whole passage. Verses 4 to 5 says, For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, and they are not stricken along with the rest of mankind. So we see that the ungodly seem to be free from the the ordinary struggles that people face. They appear to live long, healthy lives. Verse 6 says, Therefore lofty pride is their necklace, the garment of violence covers them. This image used here of a necklace reminds us of the gold necklace that was placed around Joseph and Daniel when they rose to honorable status. But here the pride and arrogance of the wicked is their apparent honorable status. And this garment of violence that they cover themselves with tells us that their evil conduct is a characteristic 
that they boastfully present to others. These people want to be known and recognized for their ruthless pride. Verse 7 tells us, Their eye bulges from fatness, the delusions of their hearts overflow. And this verse describes their self-indulgent, clear, prosperous condition. There is no limit to what they desire for or how they scheme to get it. They seem to have an overflow of what their hearts desire for and are not bound by anything or anyone to get it. Verses 8 to 10 tells us, They scoff and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue goes through the earth. Therefore his people return here to his place, and waters of fullness are drunk by them. The wicked have a deceived perception and have a godlike arrogance in which they think they are above all creation. And their prosperous success of their arrogance convinces others to follow, hoping to share in this prosperity. The sinful lifestyles of the wicked, which is, f which is full of sinful pleasure, is so intriguing to the world. And so Asaph thirsted when he dwelt upon uh, what the wicked had. Verse 11 tells us, they say, how does God know and is there knowledge with the most high? The wicked had not been prevented by God in doing their evil. And they continued their pursuit of pleasure regardless of how evil it was. There had been no consequences for their actions and falsely concluded that God did not know or did not care. Verse 12 tells us, Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease, they have increased in wealth. The wicked always appear to be comfortable in life and are even increasing in their prosperity. Now, verses 13 to 14 helps us to identify this sin issue. It says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and reproved every morning. Washing of hands is referring to Asaph's purification from sin. And so his life committed to God seemed to be pointless in comparison to the full, prosperous life of the ungodly. Asaph was chastened constantly and suffered daily, and he felt as if he was being punished for living righteously. How could righteous Asaph be punished while the wicked thrived? You see, this is the reason why envying the wicked is so sinful. It causes us to question God's justice. Job raised the same question. He says in Job 21 verse 7, Why do the wicked still live, continue on, also become very powerful? Job was defending himself from his friends who were accusing him of having some unconfessed sin to be the reason for his suffering. And Job argued that just like the way the wicked can prosper for reasons not made known to us, the righteous can suffer too for reasons not made known to us. Ecclesiastes puts this all well. It says in Ecclesiastes 8, verse 14, There is a vanity which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the works of the wicked, 
On the other hand, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the works of the righteous. I say that this too is vanity. You see, it is common for us finite humans to fall into the trap of viewing God as someone who needs to explain himself. The fallen man living in a sin-cursed world, blinded by their sin, is doubting the one who is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, immutable, holy, righteous, loving, merciful, and gracious. That is where the sin is at its root, unbelief. And more than just unbelief, but an unbelief that is accusing God. We know that God does not need to explain himself for his actions, as Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to Yahweh our God. When we envy the wicked, we are saying to God that he is treating us unfairly. How extremely sinful and wicked. The God who has graciously saved us to enjoy, to enjoy eternal life with him for nothing that we did or could ever do, and we say to him that he is treating us unfairly. Oh, may, may that never be. Please don't be foolish and envy the wicked. Scripture makes it clear that it is sin. Psalm 37 verse 1 says, Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not, be not envious toward doers of unrighteousness. Psalm 37 verse 7 tells us, be still in Yahweh and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out schemes of wickedness. And Proverbs 23 verse 17 says, Do not let your heart be jealous of sinners, but be zealous in the fear of Yahweh always. We need not stumble over the prosperity of the wicked, for we know it is sin. And God is good to those with a pure heart. Envying the wicked is sinful. To Asaph's credit, he handled this crisis and his frustration well. Verses 15 to 16 says, If I had said, I will recount thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I gave thought to know this, it was trouble in my sight. And we too, when we are troubled, we must have the same concern for uh, the, the same concern that Asaph had for God's people, and not recklessly blurt out our doubts and frustrations in the congregation. Asaph rightly knew that envying the wicked is sinful, and that he needed to seek God. Christian, if you are struggling with the feeling that your efforts for living righteously are for nothing. Look at Jesus' perfect example. Jesus, in his worst physical condition, never envied the wicked. Jesus submitted to the Father's will, even to the point of death. He knew that all that mattered here on earth was to be obedient to the Father's will. He didn't even think about the wicked's earthly pleasures, but was deeply concerned about their eternal state. That should be our response to the wicked as well. We must not envy or despise the wicked, but rather we are to evangelize to them and to help them see that they are in eternal danger. 
Did you know that prosperity can be a curse and not a blessing? Say, so like, hold on a second. How, how, can, how can prosperity be a curse? Well, those who never face hardships will never know what it is to be dependent upon God. They'll be so carried away in their pride and will never see how close they are to eternal damnation. Proverbs 1 verse 32 says, For the turning away of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. Other translations say the prosperity of fools will destroy them. And it is the same idea that prosperity and complacency can cause destruction. It is, the love of uh, it is the love of money and power and themselves that consumes them and not God. But to be clear, it is not wrong for Christians to be blessed by God and be prosperous. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 18 to 20 says, Here is what I have seen to be good, which is beautiful. To eat, to drink, and to see good in all one's labor in which he labors under the sun during the few days of his life which God has given him. For this is his portion. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to take up his portion and be glad in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not remember much the days of his life, because God allows him to occupy himself with the gladness of his heart. We ought to be glad in our work that God has gifted us to do and to eat from the portion of riches that God has allotted to us. But we must be careful to take heed of 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, which says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty or to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Our love and joy must be centered around God and not on our prosperity, for we realize it is from God in which we have received everything. We must love the giver and not the gifts. And I would exhort you to wisely use the prosperity God has given you to bless the church and others with it. So we looked at why envying the wicked is sinful. Our next reason why we should not envy the wicked is because the wicked's end is eternal torment. Verse 17 says, Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. And this verse is one of the most important verses in the whole psalm because this is the turning point where Asaph finds a proper understanding and perspective of the wicked. This is what kept him from stumbling. When his eyes were focused upon the wicked, he didn't have a desire for God. During this time, Asaph felt distant from God, uh, so he expressed his doubts in a just God. But the moment he intentionally sought God in the sanctuary, there he experienced closeness with God. This is what helped him to clear up his sinful thinking and gain a true perspective of the fate of the wicked. Psalm 25 verse 15 says, My eyes are continually toward Yahweh, for he will bring my feet out of the net. 
how often do we face trials and difficulties and turn to this world for comfort instead of God? Why do we distance ourselves from God instead of drawing near to him? James says in chapter 4, verse 8 to 9, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and cry. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. When we are faced with difficulties in this life, we must draw near to God. Do not miss this important turning point. Just like Asaph went into God's sanctuary to find rest from the confusion going on in his spiritual life, we too must use the means of grace that God has given us and be part of a local church to help us with the many difficulties of this life. Verses 18 to 20 shows us what Asaph had learned in the sanctuary of God. It says, Surely you set them in slippery places. You cause them to fall to destruction. How they become desolate in a moment. They are completely swept away by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. And to illustrate this undesirable, sudden reality for the wicked that these verses talk about, let's consider what Jesus said about hell. I unfortunately won't have time to read the full text, but I invite you to turn uh, with me uh, to this parable to remind you of it. It is Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 26. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 26. In this parable, we see a huge contrast between the rich man and poor Lazarus. We see the, the rich man, we see the rich man dressed in purple and fine linen, which only the extreme wealthy would wear. And we see that he lived joyously every day. In contrast, we see Lazarus in extreme poverty and physical pain. He was desperately needy and desiring help from the rich man. And then an event happens which changes everything for both of them, and that being death. The poor man died and was carried away by angels to dwell where Abraham was, and the rich man died and was in hell. Now just remember that this would have been a shock to the Pharisees to whom Jesus spoke this parable to. They would have seen the rich man as being extremely blessed by God for all his prosperity and wealth that he, that he obtained, and they would have seen Lazarus as being cursed by God. The Pharisees shared in that prevalent yet wrong view that if you are rich, you are blessed by God, and if you are poor, you are cursed by God. It is clear in this parable that those who end up in hell can be people who lived prosperously here on earth. Unlike the Pharisaic view, most atheistic and human achievement perspectives. Just like verse 19 says in Psalm 73, they become desolate in a moment, they are completely swept away by terrors. The rich man is immediately in hell. 
It says, he lifted up his eyes being in torment. He was immediately conscious and aware that he was in hell. John MacArthur comments on the rich man's experience in hell and says, being in torment, literally torments, plural, not one but many, coming at him from every conceivable angle, a fully informed conscience, now without restraint, without mitigation, accusing him of every evil ever committed, every act of the rejection of the truth ever committed, and that accusation would go at full force for the rest of eternity. The torments Jesus described as darkness and fire and weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, the damned are immediately in the conscious experience of torture." End quote. Another scary reality to note is that the rich man had asked Lazarus to, to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool off his tongue, for he was in agony in the flame. This is, of course, metaphoric, but emphasizes a frightening reality. He never asked for a bucket or a hose pipe, but one tiny drop. And the point is that the souls in hell suffer so badly that one tiny drop of relief would mean, that, would mean everything to them, and yet it never comes. There is no relief from the tortures in hell. The wicked are completely swept away by terrors. And even more terrifying is the reality that it is eternally fixed. Verse 26 in the parable says, And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you are not able, and none may cross over from there to us. There is no relief and no hope indeed. Mark 9 verse 48 describes hell as a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Matthew 13 verses 41 to 42 describes hell as a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It will be a place of outer darkness. So this is all to say that the Christian must remember that we are envying those who will spend eternity in turmoil and anguish. We're envying those who gain the whole world and yet forfeit their souls. Psalm 11, verse 4 to 7 says, Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. Yahweh tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. May he rain snares upon the wicked, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. But for the Christian, verse 7 of Psalm 11, it says, For Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. And with verse 7 in mind, the upright will behold his face, we will transition into the third and final point, that being the believer's end is eternal joy. So please turn back with me to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, verses 21 to 24 says, When my heart was embittered, and I was pierced within, 
Then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like an animal before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will lead me and afterward take me in glory. And these verses have tremendous truth and doctrine for us to meditate upon. Unfortunately, I won't have time to go into great detail on the doctrines of salvation, sanctification, and glorification. However, we will have a quick look at these truths. Even in the midst of Asaph's darkest moments, he can be comforted knowing that Yahweh is continually with him and that he accomplishes three things for his people. Firstly, he is the one who saves you. Verse 23 says, he is the one who takes hold of our right hand. And that, this is the reason for Asaph's continual relationship with God. See, true believers can't lose their salvation or walk away from the faith. For Yahweh is the one who has taken hold of our right hand. We didn't choose God, but he chose us. The Christian can take great comfort knowing that Yahweh is the one who saves you and keeps you, despite when you turn your back on God and doubt him. He remains faithful even when we are unfaithful, and he will hold us fast. Psalm 94 verse 18 says, If I should say, my foot has stumbled, your loving kindness, O Yahweh, will hold me up. Secondly, God is the one who sanctifies us. Verse 24 says, with your counsel, you will lead me. We see that God leads us with his counsel, and we receive God's counsel from his word, right? God's word has everything pertaining to life and godliness, Second Peter verse 1 to 3 tells us. Thirdly, God is the one who glorifies us. End of verse 24 says, and afterward take me in glory. He leads us into a glorious future with him. He, we will experience the fullness of what it means to be blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It can often be difficult, uh, difficult for us to understand the fullness of glory we will receive because we are still in the sin-corrupted body and sin-cursed world. But by the word of God and the help of the Holy Spirit, we can hold on to the reality given to us in Philippians 3, verse 20 to 21, which says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by his working through which he is able to even subject all things to himself. In our glorified, resurrected bodies, we'll still be human and finite, but we'll not have any corruption caused by indwelling sin, and will therefore have a greater capability to experience God's revelation of himself. In our glorified bodies, we will also have a greater spiritual perception of God, and will perceive him beyond the limits of our physical senses. And because we are finite and he is infinite, it will take all eternity for us to grow in our relationship with him. And hence, our joy will be ever increasing for all eternity. Do not envy the wicked, for the believer's end is eternal joy. 
what is stopping us from desiring God now and experiencing this immense joy and blessedness waiting for us? You see, defined for us in biblical doctrine by John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew is a happiness based on unchanging divine promises and eternal spiritual realities. Therefore, joy is not based upon circumstances which are constantly fluctuating, but on an unchanging realities that the believer can take hold of in God's word. It is our self-love and pride that is hindering us from experiencing this immense joy and blessedness now. You see, high thoughts of self always go with low thoughts of Christ, and low thoughts of self always go with high thoughts of Christ. As we decrease, Christ increases. Therefore, we must humble ourselves and repent of our sin constantly so that Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the Word made flesh, can be our joy. Another immense blessing the Christian has waiting for him is 1 Peter 1, verse 3 to 5, which says, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. John MacArthur says, Life, righteousness, joy, peace, perfection, God's presence, Christ's glorious companionship, rewards, and all else God has planned is the Christian's heavenly inheritance. End quote. The Christian has an incorruptible, undefiled, unfading, glorious inheritance in heaven. Isaac Ambrose puts it well in his book, Looking Unto Jesus, in which he says, Covetousness in Christians is spiritual adultery. When we have enough in God and Christ, and yet we desire to make our happiness in the creature, this is plain whoring. This next verse, verse 25, has tremendous truth and wisdom. It says in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Wait, are, are we to desire nothing here on earth? Except for God? Absolutely. King Solomon, the wisest man to have ever lived, had gotten everything that there was to desire for here on earth, and what was his conclusion? Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13 to 14. The end of the matter, all that has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, because this is the end of the matter for all mankind. For God will bring every work to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. We are to desire nothing here on earth except for God, fearing him and keeping his commandments. But you may still say, I have found difficulties with this, and I would agree the same for me. But you and I can take comfort in verse 26, which says, My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the rock of my heart and my portion forever. Again, what a joy we can have knowing that God is the one who is faithful. For though we are unfaithful, He remains faithful. 
God will never leave us nor forsake us. Even when we do fall and find ourselves envying the wicked, we must obviously repent of it, but can take comfort knowing that God is our rock and our portion. While the wicked strength and stability is like chaff which the wind drives away, the believer's strength and stability is in God. While the wicked's portion is eternal torment, the believer's portion is eternal joy. The eternal weight of glory awaiting Asaph is what helped him to persevere. We too must constantly meditate upon heavenly glories, as Colossians 3 verse 1 to 2 tells us. It says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above and not on the things that are on earth. Charles Spurgeon said, We cannot too often turn our thoughts heavenward, for this is one of the great cures for worldliness. The way to liberate our souls from the bonds that tie us to earth is to strengthen the cords that bind us to heaven. You will think less of this poor little globe when you think more of the world to come. End quote. Moving to verse 27 of Psalm 73, it says, For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed everyone who is unfaithful to you. And so to the unbeliever this morning, this is a certain reality. You will perish. He destroys everyone who is unfaithful to him. Please listen to the words of Jesus. Mark 8, verse 36 to 38 says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him who, when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Repent and believe in Jesus. Just because you may be prospering now doesn't mean that you are in favor with God. Proverbs 10 verse 2 tells us, Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. And a sobering reminder to the believer this morning, we know God destroys everyone who is unfaithful to him. And that destruction that was meant for our unfaithfulness Christ endured on the cross in full. The fullness of God's love is indeed incomprehensible. So how can we not envy the wicked? Verse 28 says, But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have set Lord Yahweh as my refuge, that I may recount all your works. And sometimes it really is just that simple. Draw near to God, for the nearness of God is your good. How can we do it? By setting Yahweh as our refuge. And how is it for our good? Because we will come to know his works and delight in them, which will lead us in telling others about them. We must not envy the wicked because it is extremely sinful. The wicked's end is eternal torment and the believer's end is eternal joy. In closing, I want to return to the heart issue in this passage. Verse 1 says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. 
But who is truly pure in heart? This goodness we have spoken about this morning is for the pure in heart. Are you pure in heart? Jeremiah 17 verse 9 to 10 tells us, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can know it? I, Yahweh, search the heart. I test the inmost being, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And that has to be a problem for us because Jesus told us in Mark 7, verse 20 to 23, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. And that is exactly what Asaph confesses to in verse 21 where he says his heart is embittered. And verse 26 where he says his heart fails. But as with all these heart and sin issues, God tells us in 1 John 1 verse 9 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We must confess our sin of envy to the Lord because he is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us. Proverbs 15 verse 29 says, Yahweh is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. And with that in mind, let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word this morning. Thank you for the means of grace you continually give us to enter into your sanctuary and find rest for our souls. Oh Lord, we confess that we are unfaithful, we are foolish, we are prideful, and we need you to cleanse us. Please forgive us for forgetting your wonderful truth and setting our thoughts upon this world. Forgive us for envying the wicked. Indeed, Lord, how extremely sinful it is. Oh, help us not to lose heart, for though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is working out for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look not at the things which are seen for the things which are seen are temporal but the things which are not seen are eternal. May you humble us before you, O Lord, for you lead the humble in justice and you teach the humble your way. For your name's sake, O Yahweh, pardon our iniquity, for it is great. Turn our eyes continually toward you, for you will bring our feet out of the net. For you have rescued our soul from death, our eyes from tears, and our feet from stumbling. O Lord, please help us to love you with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our might. Remind us, O Lord, that those who love your law have much peace. Nothing causes them to stumble. Whom do we have in heaven but you? And besides you, we desire nothing on earth. In your precious and holy name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.